This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Let's take a moment to thank our sponsor, Avast, for supporting the Bureau. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Hey, we've got a sponsor you're going to want to check out. There's a fun and challenging murder mystery game called June's Journey. This search for hidden objects will awaken your inner sleuth and project you into a thrilling adventure set in the heart of the Roaring Twenties. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. I'm Frank Figluzzi, former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence. Join me on a journey to explore our nation's security, the forces that threaten it, and the people who preserve it. Let's talk with insiders in and around the intelligence community, law enforcement, and the military, including, of course, the FBI. They'll take us deep into their stories, their mission, and their lives as we go behind and beyond the Bureau. Intelligence has never been more important than it is today. Innocent children, women are being slaughtered. The key is empathy more than anything. Raw intel almost in real time. People spy for money. This has got to be driving Putin crazy. Support to the Ukrainians is going to lead to Russian fatalities. The threat Putin feels from thriving democracies and the need he has to survive. Biometrics, facial recognition, cyber operations. It's been a gross miscalculation. I would expect some heads to roll at some point. I can't think of a better person than our next guest to take us deep beneath the surface of the battle for Ukraine and tell us what we're not seeing on our TV screens. Doug London served in the CIA's clandestine service for over three decades, including assignments in the Middle East, South and Central Asia and Africa, and three assignments as a chief of station. He's fluent in Russian and French. He's fluent in all things Putin and Ukraine. He's the author of The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence, a must-read right now. He teaches intelligence studies at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. He's a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute. And you can follow Doug on Twitter at DouglasLondon5. We're glad to have him today. Doug, I am thrilled that we've had the opportunity to link up so that we can all get your insights on what's going on just beneath the surface in the battle for Ukraine. And I can't think of a better person to share those kinds of insights uh, than you. By the way, congratulations on the new book as well. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you on the program and, and talk to your audience. And uh, I think the, the book really aligns well with what we're seeing going on in Ukraine and why Human intelligence has never been more important than it is today. Yeah, and really, for the first time, we're seeing an unprecedented amount of 
Intel displayed publicly for strategic reasons. And I want to dive deeply into that. I also want to take our listeners beneath the surface of what's going on. We're all glued to our television sets, but there's something going on, lots of things going on that aren't making it to our screens. And we'll get there in just a moment. First, I want you to share some of your personal journey. It's not very often that we get to talk to a CIA clandestine service veteran over three decades of service to this country. Get us get us to the point where you are making a decision to join the Central Intelligence Agency. Where where'd you come from? What's your what's your path to the agency? Well, thanks, Frank. Um, I, I don't know if it's as romantic and glorious as I'd, I'd like it to be. <laughs> Because I, I started out as an inner city kid from New York. I grew up in the Bronx, and uh, I was the first generation to go to college in my family. And I always had an interest in international affairs and also public service. My, my dad was a Korean War era Marine, and he certainly instilled that uh, in all of us in the family. So, you know, when I was young growing up, I thought maybe I'd be, you know, a police officer. I, I couldn't even imagine the FBI for me. When I finally got to college, uh, it was harder than I thought it might be, and I actually uh, took off uh, a semester and joined the Marine Corps, but the reserve program. And it's funny what 12 weeks in Paris Island would do to reinforce how enjoyable college could be, as opposed to the swamps of South and North Carolina. So I got back to school. Um, I had some very um, influential professors who were mentors uh, in international relations and history and such, and I thought I wanted to be a foreign service officer. Uh, which is not an easy step to take. Uh, it's a hard test, hard to get in. But I had one particular professor who was like I am today at Georgetown, an adjunct. He was a career foreign service officer. He had retired as an ambassador, and he sort of took me under his wing. But he wasn't really crazy, I think, about me going to the foreign service. I probably lacked a bit of the credentials. And he, at the time, which I didn't realize, was in contact with the agency. He was, as I'm sure you know, Frank, from your days running CI, somebody who would offer tips on people who might be receptive in the foreign diplomatic community or foreign official community. And he passed my name. So you have to imagine this is the early 80s. There was no internet. There was no CIA website. So they came to find you. And with his recommendation, they did indeed. And uh, I'd, I'd like to say that it was a deliberate choice. But it was a steady income at the time for me, which uh, drove me to it because they didn't tell you a lot about what you'd be doing once you got in the door. And uh, again, with the, the caveat that there will be only certain things you can share with us, and that will become particularly important, I think, as we get deep into the Ukraine-Russia discussion. But tell us a little bit about what you can with regard to the application process, the training process, and then, you know, the, that, that, that first assignment, which you can't share uh, specifically with us, but get us to the point where you're on your way to your first assignment. I, I can't put it in better words than to say it's sort of like being paid to play a game for me. I, I think my background and, and my talents or skills or, you know, maybe lack of talents and skills aligned with being a spy. So as I started going through training, the idea that I was going to be sent off to meet people from all different walks of life, from all different countries, from all different ethnicities and backgrounds, and persuade them generally by getting to know them and establishing a relationship of trust where I would be able to ask them to spy for the United States. A lot of that being um, 
quite coldly to tell you, manipulating their own hopes and dreams, but always in a positive way. It's it's not like the movies. It's not like you know blackmail or coercion, which I will tell you, and as you very well know, Frank, the Russians prefer to use because it's a lot easier for them in a lot of ways. But our job is to disarm people, to be a, a vehicle for them to achieve their hopes and dreams by working with the agency. So the training for me was um, was not arduous. It was kind of like play in a lot of ways. And, and, I, and I don't mean to convey any lack of seriousness because it's nothing but serious. And you're responsible for people's lives. And more importantly, and particularly as a CIA case officer, there's no dash cam. There's no witness. What you come back and say, the U.S. government has to trust you and take you at your word because critical decisions are going to be made on it. And there's no other way to verify that except your own integrity and, and over time. So the enormous sense of gratification and impact by being able to recruit agents who would produce the kind of intelligence that would directly impact on Americans, but in ways they would never see because they would get to sleep at night because people like you and the FBI and CIA were out there as their really first line of defense so that we didn't have to go into shooting wars. I couldn't imagine anything more gratifying, and it's what kept me in as, as long as it did over the years, despite what I'll acknowledge are challenges and hardships, particularly for families and, and your personal life. You know, uh, a couple of things you said have resonated with me. First, um, I too, like you, was the first person in my family to attend college. And, and then the other issue being that the, the success you had in the, the mission of being able to relate to and talk to people from all different backgrounds, you're, you're a kid from the Bronx and that, that, that works that, that I get that. And also I think for many of our listeners, the old perception of CIA officers was kind of this Ivy league, almost elite background and understandably. So that was true for, for many years. That's not you though. Right. And did you, did you sense that kind of, cultural issue when, when you were in the agency? I, I guess I sensed it when I went to what was described as an information session, because my first approach from the agency was some gentleman who called up identifying himself only as a federal government official who, who said he'd like me to come down to, to talk about a career in the U.S. government. It was as generic as that. And because I was a kid, I was in college still, I was driving a taxi cab, working as a security guard, doing a bunch of different jobs just to get myself through. I perhaps didn't take it with the seriousness I ought to have. And I I showed up in just sort of a beat up sweatshirt and jeans and sneakers. And everybody else in the room sort of fits that uh, description you offered of this very well-bred, much more well-polished individual. So I just was super fortunate. Uh, some of the individuals uh, I engaged with in the interview process were hardcore kind of Dodge City case officers themselves who you know worked in the wilds of Africa and, and Latin America and the Middle East. And for whatever reason, they saw something in me that they advocated for. And I was a bit different. And I think even today, one of the things I, I encourage the agency to think about is you know, they are getting better on diversity, thank goodness, and we are having an agency that's more reflective of our country, but it's still very narrow in its social demographic reflection. Even those of different ethnicities and backgrounds and such like that still have a little bit of that same, and I, not necessarily Ivy League, but 
maybe a bit more of a privileged lifestyle. And I found having grown up with a bit of adversity and having grown up in tough situations, nothing could have prepared me more for the challenges of being a case officer by yourself in the middle of the night in some back alley when something happens than that experience from growing up in New York the way I did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they saw something right because you, you spent over 30 years in a successful career and, and even more so becoming a chief of station, the boss in three different places, three different times uh, is quite impressive. Now you've also did this with a family, right? Tell me about life as a clandestine CIA officer and uh, a family man at the same time. What's that like? Yeah, it's uh, it's different than the movies, and it's probably too boring for people to sit through and and pay their 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 price for their ticket. But you know, we have mortgages, we have kids, we have PTA meetings, and all of that is so much harder. So the agency will allow me to say, as far as I can, that I lived undercover. I can't say exactly what kind of cover. It was sometimes official, and sometimes not, and sometimes is who I really am. And sometimes my day job was, let's say, completely different than who I really am. But you still got kids at home. You've got kids you're raising. You've got obligations. You do have, you know, soccer games and such. And it's a little harder to be there. And it's a little harder to get business done. And your kids have um, what mine have told me has been a great experience. And, and I think you'll get some mixed reviews. I had five kids over the span of my 34 years in the agency, and they all grew up at long stretches of their life overseas, which meant they moved a lot. They had to meet people and make friends new, uh, go into very difficult circumstances because they were always the outsider. So, you know, it's one thing to move from, let's say, Arizona to California, but imagine moving from, you know, New York or Washington to a Middle Eastern country where you're one of only a few kids in the class who are from the United States in a country where the United States might not be all that popular. So they had to find a way to get along with people, make friends. They had to be street savvy themselves. They had to drive in armored cars at times with escorts when we were under significant terrorist threat. They had to be evacuated from war zones and be taken out by Marines. So it makes for uh, an interesting life. But my kids tell me, at least they, they tell me to my face that they wouldn't have traded it for anything else, that they don't see the world in color. They they see people by their merit, by who they are. The, they, they don't judge people. Uh, they look inside. And they're very good at uh, ambiguous circumstances, one might say, and and dealing with people of all walks of life themselves. And they've always, all of them, had the travel bug to uh, to see and experience new and different things. Yeah, that's a positive ending uh, to the story because they will carry those experiences the rest of their lives. And I'm glad I'm glad it's positive. You tell a story, you tell a story in your book about being in a far flung foreign assignment. You tuck the kids in, they're young, you tuck them into bed or sing sing a song with them. And then your day's not over. Um, your day is beginning in a sense. You've done your day job. Now you've tucked the kids in at night and now you're out the back door of your residence to conduct a, uh, a covert uh, meet with a, uh, an asset. Um, this, is, this is life uh, as a clandestine officer, is it not? That is life. And my kids were funny because they, they would sometimes notice in some of the places that, you know, daddy would be going out at night. And I, of course, had cover stories for them, such as, oh, I was doing the food shopping and I was doing the groceries so I wouldn't bother you kids and such. But you know, as they get a little older, they get a little more savvy. And, 
you know, their friends' dads and moms aren't necessarily going out and doing this, particularly in places we were at, which tended to be challenging, sometimes dangerous, certainly austere. Uh, they would be picked up by, let's say, an official car, and I was going out the back door in jeans and a leather jacket and a backpack. So, uh, and I tell the story in, in my book, well, my one of my daughters was uh, more difficult to fool sometimes than the Russians or the Chinese. And at some dinner party, and that was always a feature of home that you'd have different people over. Uh, we She broke into a conversation I had with some gentleman who I was actually looking to see if I could cultivate. And we were all talking about how dangerous it is and, you know, people stay bottled up. And my young daughter piped in and go, well, not my daddy. He's so sweet. He doesn't want us to, to go out and do the shopping. So he waits till we're all asleep and then goes out and from the back door so he doesn't disturb us. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so that, that guy went running into the woods and I never really saw him again. Oh, no. Well, okay. Um, I, I know that you can't tell us your precise uh, geographic assignments and... Um, I'm just going to ask you this question. What what languages are you fluent in? Fluent in French, Russian, and I spoke basic Arabic. And sadly, and it's a reminder to all of you who study hard languages, particularly the hard ones, you've got to use it because they're perishable. And I've, I've lost most of my, my right. skill in all three. Yeah, use it, use it or lose it. But yeah, um, it's invaluable when trying to, particularly trying to convince people to essentially play for Team America and and do something anathema to uh, to their homeland. Um, look, the name of your bro- book is The Recruiter. So let's let's use that as a segue into what's on what's on everybody's mind today, which is Russia, Ukraine. Tell me this, as a as a recruiter, someone who's recruited people throughout the country to to uh, to come over to our side, provide intelligence they otherwise legally would not be in, uh, allowed to do. I've got you now, let's say hypothetically, up against a Russian. Time sensitivity is essential. They're at war right now with Ukraine. You're going to convince a Russian to provide strategic information to us about what Putin's planning or military maneuvers. How do you start with that? What's what's going on right now that would allow you to maybe help a Russian over that hurdle to do what's right? The first key in developing the kind of relationship you need to persuade someone to take the enormous risks of spying uh, on their own country, particularly a country where the consequences of doing so are so dire, like Russia or Iran and North Korea and China, the key is empathy, really, more than anything. Uh, Being able to relate to somebody in a way that they feel understood and appreciated. Recruitments generally take a while, particularly if you can imagine someone from a hard target, as we'd say, from a country like Russia, from Iran, from an autocratic state where, you know, there is a police state mentality, there's there's informers, there's a lack of trust, and there's serious consequences. So you're approaching someone, perhaps as a U.S. official, they're automatically going to be concerned and suspicious. They've all gone through counterintelligence briefings. They've all seen the examples that have been deliberately made of those who have been caught as a way to put fear in them. They've seen the hostage taking, if you would, sometimes of family members who are not allowed to leave the country, uh, the jail, and, and, and sometimes the lethal consequences. So you have to start with disarming people like that and approaching them in a way that they feel more comfortable that you're, you have a level of discretion, particularly with Russians. This is so important. There's nothing more important to developing a Russian 
uh, official particularly, then demonstrating early on, even symbolically, uh, discretion, what you do, what you don't do to highlight your contact, and then trying to move through the layers and peel back the layers of where they'll start sharing with you. Mm. One of the things I, I found, particularly about Russians, is uh, you know folks just expect people spy for money. And in the agency, at least, particularly when it comes to Russians, we say that's not the case. Russia, uh, Russian spy, usually for ideological reasons or some need. Money is sometimes a means to achieve some of that, but fundamentally, it's it's generally not that. It's sometimes could be the darker side of they want to strike back, but darker in a way for them, but good for us because one of our best spies ever, uh, Tukachev, the billion-dollar spy who's been written of, just wanted to do damage to the Soviet Union. Anything he could do to hurt the Soviet Union. We gave him tons of money that he never used and never spent, but his greatest joy was striking back. Getting to the point with somebody who's willing to take that risk with an American uh, takes time. I think what we see in the environment today is the likelihood that we might be fielding people, volunteers, as we'd say, in the community, in the Bureau, and the CIA, who've always had some of these concerns, who've never been happy with Putin to begin with, but now have been pushed over the edge. We talk about an existential crisis. There has to be a crisis generally to have someone take the risk that we, CIA, or the Bureau would be asking them to take to spy against their country. And believe me, what's going on is quite a crisis for many, many Russians. Yeah, I think it's a wake-up call, I would imagine. And and you're right, if anybody's been under long-term development, now is the time for them to, to wake up and realize, hmm, Putin has become mad. Uh, innocent children, women are being slaughtered in Ukraine. There are no fascists that we're uh, saving Ukraine from. Putin is crazy enough to have a firefight at a nuclear power plant and appears to, to really have no end game other than scorched earth and the total uh, reestablishment of the Soviet empire. And by the way, uh, your personal savings back home may not be there uh, when you get back home because the stock market's closed and no one can trade and, and certainly not in dollars, right? I, I, I assume this is really a moment that's a, is a crisis moment for many Russian officials. Well, Russians are very proud of their country. They're very proud of their history. Uh, and they're very attuned with history and how it has perceived Russia. So uh, the Russians I have known in, in my life, they would think this is a disgrace. They may not necessarily be fans of the United States. They don't have to be. But they're fans of Russia. And Putin does not represent Russia to them. And what he's doing is actually on par with the Nazis he's contending he's fighting in Ukraine because he's certainly acting a lot more like Hitler than, than we have seen from, obviously, the Ukrainians who are fighting for their lives and are no threat to anyone. So I don't think there's a better poster child for the U.S. intelligence community to persuade Russians to do something, whether it's coming out in the streets or working, preferably for us, behind the scenes to undo that man, as we've seen in this, this conflict. We've got a fun new sponsor called June's Journey. If you like a good whodunit as much as I do, then you'll love June's Journey. You play the game as June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries full of twists and turns around every corner. 
We all need a good diversion from our stressful lives right now. And June's Journey is the perfect game for that. With thousands of vivid scenes and new chapters every week, there's always a new case waiting to be cracked. Since you're listening to the Bureau, you know I spent my career solving mysteries. So, of course, I've been playing June's Journey to the point where it's hard to put down. It's casual gameplay that fits in whenever you need to escape. There's a detective, or FBI agent, in all of us. And your inner detective can be found by downloading June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. If you know me, you know I'm all about safety and security, especially online. So let me take a moment to talk about our new sponsor, Avast. Avast is a global leader in cybersecurity for more than 30 years and trusted by over 435 million users. Avast empowers you with digital safety and privacy, no matter who you are, where you are, or how you connect. Enjoy the opportunities that come with being connected on your terms. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. Learn more about Avast One at Avast. Their antivirus is award-winning and stops viruses and malware from harming your devices. Their data breach monitoring enables you to find out if your online accounts have been compromised and whether your passwords need to be changed. Look, cyber is the new battlefield. Let Avast go to battle for you. Their ransomware protection secures your personal photos, documents, and other files from being modified, deleted, or encrypted by ransomware attacks. Avast prevents over 1.5 billion attacks every month. And with Avast One, you can confidently take control of your online world without worrying about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, and other cyber crimes. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Now back to our podcast. Take us, take us, if you can, if anybody can, take us inside Putin's head. What do you, and I know this is a difficult task right now, but there are many people at Langley and elsewhere try, around the world trying to figure this man out. What, what's motivating him and where do you think this is headed? Well, I, I don't think Putin is mad. I, I, maybe that would be better in some ways. I, I think Putin has been reckless in this instance, largely because uh, his calculus is flawed. And some of that is due, as I wrote in a recent piece for CNN, Putin, the emperor who has no clothes, he's not really getting the best information. He doesn't surround himself with a circle of people who are going to tell him the truth, to speak truth to power. And he has, over the course of his time in power since 1999, I think, drank his own Kool-Aid, to use the phrase, where he believes in his own theater and he believes in certainly his ego. And to some small extent, the rest of the world has fed into that by appeasing, to some degree, the aggressive moves he's been making since really the time of the Russian invasion of Georgia in 2008, uh, and then his continued repression at home on human rights and freedom of speech. We've seen Russian atrocities. We've seen assassinations and poisonings of the scripples in London, of Alexei Navalny. We've seen Russian war crimes, really, in uh, Chechnya, in Georgia, in Syria, and via their mercenaries, who are simply another extension of the Russian military machine in Libya. 
So he didn't hide it from us. There were certainly outward reflections by action. And a lot of comments he made over the years, as you look in the press and you see him talking about the catastrophe that was the breakup of the Soviet Union. And if he could do something different, what would he do? It would be to keep the Soviet Union together, to keep the empire together. Um, so it wasn't hidden, but I think it, it came in a way over 22, 23 years. Incrementally, the rest of the world was looking to heal itself, was looking to try to, for a long time, so sunk in the world of counterterrorism as we were for, for 20 years, distracted by that. And he took advantage to uh, work his way into some of the gaps and got pretty far. And I think today he's looking at what's going on on the ground, at least through tactical reporting. He, at least by this point, understands things aren't going quite as well as he thought they would. Mm. Um, I, I would expect some heads to roll at some point, though doing so now would simply undermine his look of being in control, which is very important to, uh, to Putin to look like he's always in control. But he clearly had um, a false sense of confidence in what the rest of the world would do, doubting the, uh, the consensus, the unity of, the, of NATO, of the G7, of countries beyond that in making Russia pay. And that's really what he understands most. He understands consequences and he didn't see them coming. And little did he think his vaunted army, which he's spoken of so proudly these years, would be stymied as they have been by a far smaller and more poorly armed force of the Ukrainians who are fighting with, with will and aren't greeting any Russians as liberators. Yeah, you, you mentioned heads will roll. I, I have to tell you, I think not, not only because of the failures so far to accomplish the mission in Ukraine, but let's be honest, there we have witnessed an unprecedented public disclosure of what would otherwise be top secret and secret intelligence by an American president at open press conferences. And he's done this strategically, declassifying raw intel almost in real time as a way to push back on Putin, get one step ahead of Putin. This has got to be driving Putin crazy. And there, as you said, there, there's going to be heads rolling. There's going to be a mole hunt. There might be one underway right now. Who are, you know, when you, when you see an American president from a podium say with 100% certainty, Putin's made the decision to go into Ukraine. Putin's going to do it in this time frame. He's going to try to take all of Ukraine with, with certainty. You know, and I know, that that means there's multiple sources corroborating the same thing. Often that means both human sources and technical sources as well. Putin must be livid. Uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, it's 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 a tough issue. You know, here I am talking to a counterintelligence guy, and here I am a, a a field you know operative. The idea of disclosing information like we have been gives me some pause. That oh my gosh, you know, are we putting some of these sources and methods in, at any risk? And and beyond mole hunts, just all the Russians need to do is, as I'm sure they have been doing, increase their security procedures, their operational security. That in itself will make collection harder. But you know what I've seen, uh, and we've seen it borne out by effects, I, I don't believe that the United States government was declassifying intelligence thinking it was going to stop Putin. I don't think anything was going to stop Putin. But what it did do was prepare the battlefield, as our military colleagues like to say. It allowed pressure on the public amongst the Germans and the other Europeans and the Japanese 
to take action, to do something about it, because it, it was clear and black and white. And if now we see borne out by events. That has to have driven Putin crazy because the one thing he has played for for years, since at least I think we've seen 2012, 2013 timeframe, he's pursued this hybrid warfare, this addition through subtraction by trying to do what he could to weaken his enemies. He can only make Russia so strong. I, I frankly think Russia is a declining power. And if their battlefield prowess shows us anything, they truly are a declining power. But by trying to decouple allies, by weakening resolve in democracies, by making people question democracy at home, he thought he would weaken. Instead, there has been just this universal support to do something against Putin, to stand up for liberal democracy, to to draw a line against what he's doing in our own countries. And I cannot imagine anything that would drive him crazier than that. You, you raised a great point that not many others have raised, which is that this uh, strategic release of intelligence uh, for the world was not just about Putin, but, but about uh, unifying the G7, the EU, our allies, convincing them that we, we had the ground truth and that this was going to happen, and they, they better be on the right side of history. I think that's, that's an excellent point. And I, and I hope, of course, that, that the allies are sharing mutually their in- intelligence with, with all of us as well. And of course, that we're sharing as much as we can, as carefully as we can, with the Ukrainians. And I'm convinced that that's part of the Ukrainian success story, is that they're, they're not doing this all by themselves. I think the American public, particularly those screaming, for a, you know, a no-fly zone and to do more, don't understand what's happening just beneath the surface. It didn't happen overnight. It's uh, important to remember that this has been a consistent policy through different administrations of supporting Ukraine. After the Russians invaded and annexed Crimea and established uh, the separatist zones in the east, the United States, as well as other, particularly the NATO countries, provided a great deal of support and training. The Ukrainians have been preparing for at least eight years with the help of the U.S. and other foreign partners. So their basic infrastructure is much stronger, their experience in fighting a war, because they've been fighting a war for eight years, particularly in the East, has sown their you know capabilities and their skills. And no doubt, uh, the continued U.S. intelligence that and, and foreign intelligence from other Western powers and NATO powers is making a significant difference. I know that the U.S. government has very publicly taken a very cautious route and said, well, you know, we're not providing them real-time intel that they could see, here's a formation of Russian troops, go ahead and attack it. That might be true, but I would also imagine there's a covert component to intelligence that they're receiving based at a minimum of the infrastructure we've provided them, and perhaps which would be required a, a covert action finding for the United States to go ahead and provide them intelligence that would lead to Russian fatalities. Well, let's let's go there since we're now talking about what's going on beneath the surface, and let's let's speak in hypotheticals. We don't want to endanger or expose anything ongoing, and quite frankly, you and I would be engaged in conjecture by doing that. But hypothetically, or in in a historical con, uh, context. How would the U.S. intelligence community support an insurgency somewhere in the world? What do we know about what that would look like? Well, we've seen a lot of examples of it, haven't we? We certainly saw it in Iraq before the fall of Saddam, working particularly with the Kurds in the north and the Shia to some degree in in the south. 
We've seen it sort of in Afghanistan when the then Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. We, we saw it in Central America, and there's a lot of examples. Going back to World War II, the CIA's predecessor, the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, was really best known for working with the French underground, the Norwegian underground, during World War II. So there's a pretty fair blueprint, which is no secret, which the Russians are aware of, and you could see in some of their actions how they're trying to mitigate against that blueprint, which is a combination of, you could have dissidents and partisans, if you would, that operate in the woods and the hills, which is frankly harder to do these days with technology and thermal imaging. But you also have underground cells, and often the more decentralized, the better, because the compromise of one cell can't you know, bleed over to another. There's no doubt lines of communication and support, just like smugglers would. So we're, that's not really a huge secret. Smugglers establish, they call them rat lines or pipelines. We would be doing, the U.S. intel community, the, our partners the same, in setting up series of support assets, safe houses, to move people and supplies and weapons in and out, back and forth across the border. Ukraine has a very generous border with NATO partners and a, and a long border with Moldova, which has claimed neutrality, but they're very anti-Russian. They've got their own separatist issue in Transnistria, where there are Russian troops on their grounds. And their president has been pretty forthcoming about protecting Ukrainians and working with the West. So there's certainly a lot of avenues. I think it's reflected in Soviet acknowledgement that they're desperate to block off line of supply from the Black Sea. They're trying to move as best they can to consolidate in the south, to try to take Maripol, which is in the Sea of Azov, to try to take Odessa, which is close to the border with Romania and also Moldova, lines of supply. And I've been very proud of our, our NATO allies, particularly Poland, which is not pulling any punches. I mean, they are, at least publicly, the greatest line of resupply to Ukraine coming in through the Ukraine's western border and then clearly making its way across. So there's been a great deal of training and preparation to go into that. There's infrastructure and intelligence communications and such that I'm sure that the United States would use covertly to continue helping them, to continue providing intelligence, to continue helping them infiltrate into cities, out of cities as they conduct their operations to give them battle damage assessment, as well as targeting help. So the, the playbook is there, and the Russians were going to have a challenge. It's, it's a big place, Ukraine. It's mm -hmm. bigger than Texas. Its cities, which are large, are separated by a great deal of territory in between. And if you remember, our big challenge in Afghanistan was the West, the U.S., the, our Afghan allies would control the cities, but we couldn't control the countryside. And that's right. eventually how the Afghans were able to sort of encircle and lay siege there. So they've got uh, the Russians' challenges ahead and a lot of advantage for the Ukrainians. Yeah. Yeah, this is, um, this is complicated stuff. We're talking about clandestinely, covertly supporting a country at war with, uh, with Russia and uh, what that looks like on the ground. And the, the reality that while you and I can discuss this from the comfort of our homes, um, we're talking about uh, boots on the ground. We're talking about supplying, establishing supply routes. We're talking about not getting caught doing it. You mentioned a covert action order would be required for some of this. Tell our listeners who may be hearing that phrase for the first time what that is. 
So corporate action is what people more think of, you know, CIA, you know, overthrows a government or, or conducts paramilitary operations or, you know, people uh, attribute drone strikes, if you would, to that. This all has to come from a presidential finding. Covert action allows the United States to do something which it is seen as the people's or the government's best interest, but it's deniable. So the military conducts secret missions, but they're not deniable. We don't try to make it deniable because of our care for not putting our military colleagues in harm's way. But CIA has a charter in the U.S. government to actually conduct deniable operations where the president can stand in front of an audience and go, I don't know what you're talking about. We didn't do it. It starts with a presidential finding. It then becomes a memorandum of notification for a select group in Congress, usually the Gang of Eight, which is the minority majority in both houses, uh, the heads of the Senate and the, uh, the House Oversight Committees, um, who are aware of this, who, in fact, through congressional mandate, provide the funding to it. But it's done in a very compartmented way. It allows the CIA then to undertake covert action, to undertake activities which are deniable to the U.S. government, which include the kinetic peace, which we would see because any support to the Ukrainians is going to lead to Russian fatalities. And as you know, Frank, uh, but for your audience, the United States government can't ask anyone, can't provide intel to anyone that does things we can't do ourselves. So if people are going to get hurt, if things are, you know, glass is going to be broken, we have to have the authorities to do it, even to support others in that, in that challenge, in that mission. So there obviously had been some sort of covert action findings, even from the time the U.S. intel was helping the Ukrainians from 2014 on. And I would imagine to align with the circumstances, they will be adjusting, which would then require updated memorandum notifications to Congress. Yeah. Yeah. So I think welcome news to listeners uh, just thinking we're sitting on our hands and it's that's un, uh, not likely the case. But you raise the issue of, and this comes up in a big way in your book, of whether the CIA is up to the task they face today, not only just with the Russia-Ukraine, but writ large, post 9-11, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, and you you expound on this in your book. The U.S. intelligence community, my old agency uh, in a big way, the FBI, post 9-11, it was all hands on deck for international terrorism. Um, it changed the culture of the FBI for sure. What's the CIA looking like today post 9-11? What was your experience with culture and strategic change? And is it for the better, the worse? Where are we today in the U.S. intel community to battle the new and present threats? So for 20 years, the CIA was primarily focused on the war on terror and every station around the world that was its primary operating directive was to conduct counterterrorism operations. I believe it affected the culture in some unfortunate ways, largely uh, in a way just by the realities of if you're changing the mission that your organization has, you're changing their culture. The CIA was founded on three basic charges, which was foreign intelligence collection, analysis, and covert action. Covert action being the, the smaller piece of it, because covert action is probably the biggest risk and, and has the, the greatest potential blowback. So it's not done or it shouldn't be done without great thought. For 20 years, it was about fine, fix, finish for the CIA. It was about 
geolocating terrorists and, as we would say euphemistically, remove them from the battlefield. And, and in some aspects, that was literally you know, arresting them because a live terrorist, frankly, I would tell you, as I'm sure you would say about a criminal, is better than a dead one who can't talk to you, from whom you can't collect more information. So the ideal would be to capture people, but not always practical when you're talking about you know, the sanctuaries of the federal administrative area of Pakistan or Afghanistan or parts of Syria and Libya, and, and uh, the list can go on. So people were making their careers on covert action. People were making their careers on kinetic activity, on paramilitary activity. So those were the people, obviously, that were moving up. In turn, they were less experienced in traditional foreign intelligence collection. Uh, our officers growing up in this culture were getting less of that. And as an organization, we simply by resource, finite resources, were investing less in foreign intelligence in terms of tradecraft. The world is real different now than it was in 2001. Biometrics, facial recognition, cyber operations, tracking, spoofing of tracking. I mean, it's a, it's a much different world. And the, the, the point of CIA clandestine operations is that. Clandestine means not being seen, that it's out of anyone's eyesight too. Being able to do that now is harder and that we probably could have invested more in that art form, in that how do we beat technology? How do we use technology to better spy as we pivot to strategic competition or great power competition where it's going to be less about kinetic, though the Ukraine will be the, you know, proves the rule wrong on that because it's going to be the exception, but we're not going to be, you know, taking drone strikes. We're going to be supporting our allies, the Ukrainians, and much more about the insight that we spoke to earlier that the United States knew that the intelligence community had it right and was able to use that intelligence towards such great effect in rallying the world together, whereas the Germans I think, shocked the world in shutting down Nord Stream 2 simply the night that Putin made his announcement that he was recognizing the separatist republics, even before the invasion, that the Germans are now you know, providing weapons to the Ukrainians. Even the Ukrainians who fought the Germans in World War II are a little taken aback by that. That all came from intelligence. And as you correctly said, to have been that confident means it was from multiple sources, multiple streams, that was certainly technical and perhaps some open source, but I'm pretty confident there were some spies out there working the streets getting that information to us. Yeah, me too. And, and I hope so. I hope that's the case. And I hope the agency is up to the task uh, to deal with the threat right in front of us right now. I, yeah, I, I even mentioned in my book, uh, The FBI Way, the, the time that, you know, every year the FBI takes a look at their priority rankings of their programs. And the reality is that since 9-11, counterterrorism has been and remains the number one priority. Counterintelligence is the number two priority. And every FBI employee can really list for you the top, top 10 priorities. Cyber is number three, et cetera. But one day, as we're going through this, this review, I mentioned to the higher-ups that uh, it might be time to reconsider and flip counterintelligence to number one. And, you know, we're, this is before we were, we were fully convinced that Russia was able to interfere with our elections and, and that cyber propaganda and hacking was going to be where it's at. But we saw signs of this. And the reality is that it's politically unpopular to tell Congress that, hey, counterterrorism's not 
number one for us anymore, right? Uh, nobody wants to actually say that, even though they know counter intel threat is um, enormous, and and we certainly see that play out over the last five years. Similarly, you know, it, it, in the agency in the intel community, the same same thing is there. So the skill sets change. And, and you can get with your, get caught with your pants down if, if you're not careful. Do you think that CIA Director Burns is doing the right thing? Is he properly playing catch up as best he can? The reflections I see publicly, at least, and, and what I hear in the, in the grapevine are, are very positive about what Director Burns has been doing. What's been most noticeable to me that I could see, because public announcements are made, have to do with personnel changes and have to do with priorities. And I know that the director has shown a number of those to the door whose time had come, who were so still wedded in the 20-year culture of CT and in kinetic activities and had not really been as invested in foreign intelligence. The director has made some appointments of those I know to senior positions that reflect greater attention to creativity, innovation, um, bringing in younger, fresher minds who are more technically savvy and also more representative of our country in terms of diversity. He said publicly his priorities are, in fact, China and technology, largely cyber, and Russia, great power competition. So he's clearly investing in those areas. And from what I could see, at least, you know, on the outside, it's uh, to positive effect. You know, your point is so well stated about counterintelligence. Counterintelligence isn't as sexy, I think, for politicians as drone videos of things blowing up and such like that, that they could take pride in. And, you know, counterintelligence is both the defensive part about making ourselves a harder target and looking for insider threat. But the best counterintelligence tool is usually recruiting penetrations of your opposition. That means the traditional go out and spy and find yourself some penetration who could tell us what the Russians are doing, what the Chinese are doing, what any of our adversaries, rivals, or sometimes competitors are doing. So extremely critical. And and I, I'd like to say from what I've seen so far, it looks like Director Burns is on the right path. Doug, there's been reports over the weekend, uh, not confirmed, at least for me, but perhaps confirmed. I, I, I don't I'll have to check, but that a Russian aircraft uh, flew into Washington, D.C. area, allegedly with Russian government officials. If that happened and if they're having meetings and negotiating secretly with us or others and you're in that room, you're asked to weigh in. What's the off ramp we offer Putin? Do we make any offers to Putin? How do we help him save face? What what do we suggest? What do we suggest behind the scenes to the Ukrainians to offer up? Where where might this go that might end better than it looks like it's going to end? It's a really tough balance because Putin has to have an end game first. He has to have an off ramp. And I would just surmise at this point it's not what he originally thought it was going to be. I think there's a great deal of truth in what I read that this was about Putin reacting, and I do think, to a concern that ultimately he might face a challenge at home, a grassroots challenge at home. And the last thing he needed was 40 million Slavs who are former Soviet citizens in a vibrant, pluralistic democracy, considering not just the number of Ukrainians in Russia, but the number of Russians that relate to that and go, hey, how come not us? The rest of his client states are not doing all that well, though they may be on board with him. Belarus is only how long ago from hundreds of thousands of people in the streets 
protesting. We've seen evidence of Belarusian military officers. The chief of staff, if it's correct, I, I haven't vetted it, resigning rather than aiding the Russians in invading. Kazakhstan just went through turmoil. Chechnya is a complete mess. So I think perhaps based on flawed intelligence, Putin thought he could rewrite history, reset the clock, gain control over these outlying states, not necessarily rule them directly. He wouldn't have to, but just to make sure they were secure, good buffer zones. Now, what does that off-ramp look like to him? We've seen in the press today him uh, airing the possibility of, well, if you recognize the Crimea as Russia, recognize the two separatist states and renounce uh, joining NATO uh, and being neutral, that we'd accept that. He might have actually been able to have that. Had he started out with that, it might have not required an invasion. So I don't think those were really his goals. That might be what he's now teeing up as a end game, a off ramp for him. But I think it's too late. I don't think the Ukrainians are going to just go, okay, that's fine. And that now seeing the unity of the world against him, that the West, that the US, that the NATO are simply going to stop at that. So you make a really good question. How can we provide a carrot when maybe the, the best carrot is the absence of a stick for him in trying to push him forward? And I'm really not prepared to know what that is because I don't know that Putin has decided what that is. So, Doug, I always like to try to end on a on a hopeful spot, uh, but it's we're we're both finding it difficult to find that spot right now, and it's a reminder to all that, based on what you just said, this this thing is not about NATO, as it is really about the threat Putin feels from thriving democracies, and the need he has to survive try to coalesce his people around some common enemy. But the reality is it's been a gross miscalculation. I think I think he saw Trump's efforts to weaken the allies, to weaken NATO as uh, having some impact. But boy, was that a mistake uh, on his part. So look, I want to thank you not only for your insights today, which really are singular in nature from someone with your background, but I want to thank you and your family for over three decades of service to the democracy that we cherish and to our nation. So thank you. I hope this is the beginning of a dialogue. Everybody go out, grab uh, The Recruiter by Doug London. It's well worth the read. Thanks for listening to this special Ukraine-Russia episode with our guest, Doug London. Next week, an episode I know you'll enjoy as much as I did our guest will be Joyce Vance, MSNBC legal analyst, former U.S. attorney, and a fellow colleague of mine. Next week on The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. The Bureau is written by Frank Figluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.